Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 12. Be jumping around a little bit on our way to Easter here in a number of weeks. Today in Luke chapter 12. While you turn, I want to read again to you a portion from Joe's scripture reading. Every once in a while, I, I will send Justin a note asking, you know, hey, could you ask whoever's reading this morning to read this, or could you ask them to read that? But most of the time, I don't, and, and I find out what's going to be read when someone stands up to read. As long as they're reading from the Bible, that's an okay approach for me. I trust that they've prayed about it. The last several times we've had Scripture reading have been particularly powerful for me as I sit and I read along. Um... From Psalm 103, which Joe read from, this is just a 10-verse section in the middle of it. Listen to this testimony. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Wow. What powerful words. <laughs> As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. On those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those who remember His commandments to do them. Wow. Father, thank You for Your great patience towards me. That's what I was feeling during our reading time. Jocelyn, to help your dad out and bring me some of that Kleenex there from the front row so I'm not a mess for a while. Jocelyn making her first public appearance during a sermon. The place she would like least to be. Thank you, Jocelyn. I'll mute this so you don't have to hear me blow my nose. Um, as we turn to Luke 12, um, I'll share with you that you know, I'm in a, a pretty challenging part of my life right now. And uh, 
Some of it I knew would be this way, and, and some of it um, I didn't, which is how life goes. But I'm doing a lot of traveling, and I bring it up not to make a sermon about me, but to tell you that when I travel, um, I tend to do a lot of introspective thoughts, because I mostly travel alone, a lot of time you know, alone when I, when I travel, and I have a lot of it over the next few weeks. And yeah, I'm a family man, I guess... The, uh, I am around my family or thinking of my family, going from or returning to them all the time. Many of you are the same way. Um, but when you travel and you're on your own for an extended period of time, there's, uh, for me, it's a, it's a lot of time to stop and think about who you are. You know, apart from your family. I think it's very easy for our identities to be wrapped up in our family life. Those of us with children and with house and home and job. Um, But when you are separated for any reason, and I think it would be the same if you were on some extended military service, if you were on a missionary journey, if if, uh, sickness or illness separated you for any length of time, um, it gives you a chance to ask yourself, who are you? Not you as a unit in your family, but who are you as a person? And, you know, uh, I don't enjoy traveling uh, very much, but I do enjoy oftentimes what comes out of it. And uh, it is a lot of introspection. You can probably manufacture the same thing if you go on a long enough walk. <laughs> if, you, if, if, you're, if you turn whatever goes into your ear or whatever's in front of your face off for a long enough period of time to just think and stop and reflect. And that feeds a lot of kind of careful evaluation for me. And, uh, you know, I wanted to revisit some of the principles which we've been circling around for a while in the letter uh, to Corinth. But I wanted to do it from a different section. And so I want to read you this morning from Luke chapter 12. But first... If you'll give me a minute, let's set the stage. I think you can do it just from the subtitles if your Bible has them. I know Tammy Reggie told me how much you hate the subtitles from his class in the Bible, so I'm sorry to keep calling your attention to these subtitles. But if you look in chapter 11, you can get a sense of where it's at. Um, In chapter 11... Uh, you see Christ doing a lot of things, powerful things. And then you see a change around verse 37, at least in the New King James. There, in my Bible, there's a subtitle that says, Woes on the Pharisees. And then in chapter 11, around verse 45, Woes on the lawyers. Um, and as you actually read the text, you come to find that in verse 37 of chapter 11, It says, And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with them. So he went and he sat down to eat. So Jesus has dinner with the Pharisees. And um, the Pharisees uh, have a critical thought about Jesus. And then I'll just read this section to you without much commentary. Listen to how the dinner conversation deteriorates here. Jesus, the Lord, said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and the dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Remember those two accusations. Particularly greed. Remember that one. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but rather give alms. Remember that. It'll come up again in chapter 12. 
Give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herb and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen and the men who walk over them are not aware." Like you trap people and end up falling into pits. <laughs> well, as this conversation is happening, you know, there's another group there with the Pharisees. And it's, it's one of the lawyers. <laughs> Excuse me. Then one of the lawyers answers, and I'm teacher by saying these things, you reproach us also. Ever had that feeling? Don't mix me in with those guys, you know. Around Jesus, you get the feeling that silence is sometimes the better option. So then he draws the attention of the Lord and he said, Woe to you also lawyers. Uh-oh. <laughs> and if you just look at the size, what he's getting ready to say is longer than what he said to the first group. So should have kept his mouth shut. Guilty by association would have been better than being in the crosshairs himself. Woe to you also lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles and some of them they will kill and persecute that the blood of all the prophets which was said from the foundation of the world would be required of this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. That's covering the Old Testament, the entire thing. Who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering, you hindered. And as he said these things, the scribes and Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. So a lively discussion ensued. Notice the greed called out to the Pharisees and then when he turns his attention to the lawyers, notice the credit he gives them for building the great tombs and monuments to the prophets. In both accusations there is the call to greed and the accumulation of wealth and the building of earthly things and both the accusation is the hypocrisy of what is inward when he judges the Pharisees in verse 42 after saying you don't give alms now it's you know our idea of alms are is kind of framed by like the old Robin Hood cartoons where someone's like alms for the poor or whatever Alms were what they called giving that was not obligatory to those who were asking and those who were in need. Alms was just giving to the poor. It wasn't giving through any organization. It was direct giving. Now in verse 42 he says, You tithe all manner of mint and root. In other words, you do the officious giving that you're supposed to do because you're commanded to do it. But you don't do the kind of giving that you only do out of love and compassion. And, and the accusation is, you ought to have done both. He says in verse 42, These you should have done without leaving the others undone. 
It's kind of the idea to those who know to do right and don't do it. To them it's sin. Now in chapter 12, now that the stage is set, we read this. In the meantime, and I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means over a long period of time. I don't know if this is at the dinner, but in the meantime. You know, kind of Luke's transitory, transitory phrase here. When the innumerable, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together. I don't know how many is innumerable for Luke, but there was, there was no point in trying to count them. Now they counted when it was 4,000 and when it was 5,000. I don't know if this means there were more than 4,000 or more than 5,000. Um, or if the setting made it impossible to take any kind of attendance. But there was an innumerable amount of people so that they trampled one another. He began to say to his disciples, first of all, as an aside, I think Jesus does this sometimes because this was the best way to have the people all shut up and get orderly when he just starts talking quietly to, to his disciples. I've tried this with basketball team before. It actually is pretty effective. You know, you try to get control of a practice, but everybody's talking, doing their own thing, and you just stand there and you just wait. <laughs> you just stand there until eventually everybody, oh, I think he's going to say something. Well, Jesus starts speaking to his disciples, and, and all of a sudden there's some order because they're there. They want to hear what, what he's saying. So as he starts to speak aside to his disciples, things hush. And order starts to be restored. And he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now we know what hypocrisy is. It's being something outwardly while not being that thing inwardly. It's putting on one face while secretly harboring another. And so Jesus says, beware of the leaven. Beware of the thing that corrupts the Pharisees. What corrupts them is their hypocrisy. In other words, there is some inward conflict. They are inwardly out of line with what they outwardly portray and that in and of itself is corrupting them in an ongoing way. This outward portrayal that is in conflict with what they know is inwardly is corrupting to them. And you should be aware of it. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Now, by the context of the chapters, my assumption is Jesus knows the conspiracies of the Pharisees and the lawyers to publicly humiliate, shame, and even do away with him because of the threat that he represents to them personally. And he knows of the conversations that are being whispered and the meetings that are taking place about him. And when he says, beware of the Pharisees, he is calling attention to all of those secret plots that are fomenting in the background. And he basically says there aren't going to be any secrets at the end of the day. All plotting and planning will be disclosed for all the world to judge. Now, 
The threat that Jesus represented to the Pharisees was more a material threat than a theological threat. After all, Jesus did not come doing away with the law of Moses or the prophets or with some heretical teaching, but the way he taught the law and the way he taught the prophets and the way he called to task the outright sin and hypocrisy around him threatened the Pharisees materially in many different ways. It threatened the attention of the people, which is where the Pharisees and the lawyers' material wealth would get a revenue stream from. It also threatened, though, their established places in society. When Kings like Herod, when governors under Herod began to decide that someone was an enemy or represented an upheaval potential, the pressure was put down through the ranks, through the officials, to quell the quiet thing. And if they could not quell this source of potential rebellion, then they would be replaced, removed, dispatched. We see this even at the crucifixion scene in the way that Pilate himself feels the pressure of the government upon him, the pressure of upheaval and revolt to do something which he alone does not appear comfortable to do in the crucifixion of Jesus. When you read the Bible and you read about Pharisees and lawyers, remember we're not just reading about people, we're reading about officials. We're reading about people with a moniker of power and possession. And you can see that in the way Jesus deals with them. Greed, the building of monuments, the laying of burdens upon men. These were not just regular old blokes. These were, these were people of power. These were people who stood to lose something if Jesus caused any kind of rebellion or revolt. And because of that they were dangerous. They were dangerous. They were threatening. We see glimpses of the danger and the threats that they represent in the several times just in reading the gospel accounts that they stir up the people to stone someone. Um, even in the woman caught in adultery, which we can debate about the historicity of a chapter, but you see the power of the Pharisees kind of on display. You see the way the Pharisees uh, stir, up Jesus, stir up the people in the temple when Jesus is speaking to try to stone him in John's gospel. Um, you see the way that the leaders of the synagogue allow Jesus in his home area of Nazareth to be uh, run off a cliff so to speak. So there was always behind this power kind of the authoritative danger, the reality that these were folks who presented a real threat to those who weren't in line. And so Jesus, after telling his disciples to beware of them, in verse 4 of chapter 12 says this, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Now, this is going to frame, this idea of death is going to frame all of this teaching in chapter 12. There's the phrase, kill the body, in verse 4. In verse 5, there's the word killed. In verse 11, there's bringing you before synagogues and magistrates and authorities under trial. 
Um, all the way through, verse 20, there's this parable that we've talked about recently. This night your soul will be required of you. Verse 23, life is more than food. You're more valuable than birds, verse 24. You understand, this is really about life and death stuff. That's what frames chapter 12. How do you look at life? How do you think about death? I was traveling and I heard a Johnny Cash song on the radio and I caught glimpses of the lyrics and I wanted to hear the whole thing and I started listening to this song because I'd never, this is a Johnny Cash song I'd never heard before. And I listened to the whole thing. I pulled it up on my phone because I wanted to hear the, the full song. I only caught a glimpse of the lyrics. But I, you know, you, I recognized Johnny Cash's voice. So I knew where to look and I found it on the internet and I listened to it. And man, I just listened to it over and over again for a while. It was captivating. Come to find out he didn't write it but he made it famous at the very end of his life, months before he died. He did the video months, but some of you are smiling. You must know what I'm talking about. Months before he died, and months before his wife uh, June died. She died shortly before him. And, and, uh, and as I listen to the song over and over again, you know, you, you see, you know, the way he's performing it is about his life and about the loss that he knows now as an old man from the days of a younger man. And there's a video, a music video, and it actually has scenes, a pictorial of, of, of the crucifixion of Christ in it. And I'm not saying it's a theologically inspiring music video, but the more I grappled with it, the more I thought, man, if ever there was a secular music video, I wish I could put up on a screen because here is a guy with possession and wealth and power and has it all. And we get to see a video from him with months left to live, months left for his wife to live. And that's really the, the music video is from a, a Johnny Cash museum that was just miles from where he lived and now the museum at this stage of his life is all closed up and it's all boarded up and, and it's all overgrown and inside it's all run down and there's golden music records that are just laying around in heaps and piles and all this crazy stuff from a life that you know the song the lyric that caught me was he says at one point you can have it all my empire of dirt and I thought, man, that's a powerful thing. That's what, that's what Jesus is speaking to in Luke chapter 12. He's not speaking to our Americanized, never say die, build your empire and your wealth and your 401k and your trophies on the shelf and all of your LinkedIn awards on your page and all of your photos and memories on Facebook. He's not speaking to all of that accumulation of stuff. He's speaking to basic life and death. He says, I say to you, my friends, man, I want to be known as a friend of Jesus. What an intimate way of approaching the subject. Friends, you know, I get the Jim Nance Masters Golf Tournament. Hello, friends. Some of you won't know that. What an intimate greeting. My friends, do not 
be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. What a powerful thing from Jesus. On the one hand, it's so counteractive to everything we see around us. Do not fear those who can kill the body and after that do no more. That's not the culture that we live in. We don't live in a world that thinks after that at all. You heard the phrase, if you have your health, you have everything. And if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. That's the culture we live in. Jesus is saying, don't be afraid of merely dying. Be afraid of what comes after that. Verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? <laughs> um, a bit of a translation help for us on the copper coins. I mean, you know, the original Greek, a very small amount of money. <laughs> you know, and you could go to the temple and you could buy a sacrifice to offer there in the courtyard and you could buy a nice sacrifice if you were wealthy you could buy a cheap sacrifice if you were poor but everybody had to offer a sacrifice you could buy a you could buy a bird for a couple of coins and not one of them is forgotten before God but the very hairs of your head are all numbered now it'd be one thing I think I'd read that one way if um, Paul was writing that. Like if Paul wrote, and I know all the scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but I'd be tempted to think it was hyperbole if Paul wrote that every sparrow is known by God. But this is God telling us that every sparrow is known by God. This is Jesus. Uh, I don't think it's hyperbole then. I mean, and again I'm confronted with the the vastness of the mind of God because I am a very limited man. And I've had people come up to me before and say, well, this makes sense to you because you're really smart or you have such a good memory because of this or that. And I am reminded constantly of all of my intellectual limitations and the idea that God is so vastly unlimited that He knows every bird in the sky. I mean, it makes sense. I know intellectually I shouldn't project my own limitations on the Almighty God, but I can't help but do that sometimes. It is not cumbersome for God to know all of the birds. It's easy for Him. And I am just amazed at the the vastness of what it means unlimited power and knowledge 
The very hairs of your head are all numbered, which is what Marty expected me to make a comment about. He started laughing the moment I said that. I won't make the easy joke. But his reasoning, as he calls our attention to the vastness of God's unlimited knowledge, his reasoning is, in second half of verse 7, do not fear therefore. You are more value than many sparrows. <laughs> Which is good news for, for you and I, right? But think about what he's saying and what he's not saying. He is not comforting his disciples by saying, You're more valuable than sparrows, so God won't let anything bad happen to you. That's not what he's saying. Sparrows die, and so will you. The comfort is, there is the Almighty Yahweh who is not oblivious to any of this and who sees and knows all of you in intimate ways that you don't even know yourself. How many hairs are on your head? And the comfort there should be the person threatening you, the circumstance threatening you, whatever your cause of fear is, is minuscule in power or knowledge of the situation as opposed to the Almighty God. Which is who we should be mostly concerned about when we feel threatened. This dynamic is something that I've been playing with for a long time uh, in Sunday school with the youth on Sunday mornings. The dynamic of fear versus faith. And the reason why we're there on Sunday mornings is because we're talking about the transition in the Old Testament between King Saul and King David. And on the one hand you have Saul who is completely governed by fear. It's pathetic and sad. This morning we read how he killed an entire city of priests. Not just the priests, men, women, children. It even says in the text, nursing infants, their animals, destroyed the entire place. Because he convinced himself that the head of the priests had conspired with David against him to take the kingdom away from him. It's a man with lots of power, governed by his runaway fears. And here God is telling you, don't be afraid of any earthly man or circumstance will come to, it will be extrapolated to circumstance in a minute. But fear God who can do worse to you than anything on this earth when you meet him in judgment. Fear God who can throw you into eternal damnation for what you've done. That is terrifying. There is something worse than death. There's something worse than Saul losing his kingdom. There's something worse than Jonathan not sitting on the throne one day. There's something worse than being an outcast in Israel. There is what happens to you when you face God after you die. 
If you are righteous, if you are innocent, don't be afraid of those who would threaten you, do you harm? God knows. Verse 8, Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him, the Son of Man also, will confess before the angels of God. Now that is the get out of hell card. Right there. That's why the verse is in there. Because just a few verses earlier, he references the one who will kill you and then send you to hell. And now... We have the way out. Whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. What you do with faith in Jesus Christ determines whether you meet God as a judge and face eternal hell or meet God as a forgiven child. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. Amen. Amen. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now, this has been messed with a lot, this little phrase. But I, I want you to understand the context of this. The Pharisees and the lawyers were looking at the things that Jesus was doing supernaturally. His miracles. Which, the other, which was what was drawing the people. And they said he has a demon. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He's saying they have gone to a place spiritually from which there is no return. That they would attribute the power of God to demons. To try to dissuade people from salvation. Verse 11. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and the magistrates and the authorities. Do not worry about how you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you that very hour what you ought to say. There is a real threat here. Um, I think in verse 4, Jesus is calling us to a resurrection world view. And I think that that ties to 1 Corinthians 15 very well if you see it that way. When Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but be afraid of him who after he has killed the body can cast you into hell, he is calling you to a resurrection world view. A way of seeing the world through the eyes of a dying man or a dying woman. A way of seeing the world with the understanding that death is not merely the end, but it is the beginning. Because death is when we stand before God, who is the giver of all life. Death is the pathway by which we get the incorruptible body that we've been promised in Jesus. This is really about taking 1 Corinthians 15, which made the case for the resurrection, and applying that thinking to how we live our lives right now. And I've got to tell you, just to set the stage for the next couple of weeks, Lord willing, it's uncomfortable. You can see as you read through some of this, why the Pharisees and the lawyers had had enough of all of this. You can see, it's not hard to understand. And as we go through some of this in the weeks ahead, I'm going to tell you now the temptation that you're going to face.
And besides, it's not coming. <laughs> the other temptation that you're going to face. Okay, I can tell you now. It's going to be to read these very challenging things and to kind of dull the edge of the knife a little bit. Not let them cause the pain or the conviction that they otherwise would if they were simply understood as they are. And I'm going to ask with confidence, with hope, with faith, because I believe in your love for the Lord that you not do that over the next week or two. We know that all of us, and, and frankly we can be forgiven for this, all of us put thoughts of death and morbidity out of our mind as frequently as we can. We know it's there, but we prefer not to live with that thought in the here and the now. And we instead distract ourselves. Like I said, I'm a family man. I, there's just distractions all around me. I can find a distraction in 30 seconds. All I have to say is, hey, Reg, do you want to? And there's a distraction. I mean, we're, we're off, right? And we all live with that. But we have to live as people with an understanding of what it means to meet God on the other side of whatever we do with our time and our life here. And, and that's what Jesus is really speaking to his friends about here in Luke chapter 12. And it will be convicting. So I'm going to ask you to resist the temptation to dull the edge of it. Because only if you allow yourself to be cut to the heart, only then can you really get to the joy and the better living and the peace that's on the other side of some of those wounds. I'll, I'll tell you right now, I would be shocked if all around the sanctuary this morning, all of our lives... I would be shocked if a small percentage of our lives were not in a place to be wounded a little bit by Luke chapter 12. I would be shocked. You know, because we're flesh and blood, human beings. And that's why I was so grateful for Psalm 103 there. That God is so... <laughs> He's so merciful and pitiable on His children and... Uh, he will not always strive for us, you know, because, you know, and that's why the emotion at the beginning of the service for me, because you guys are just now being confronted with some of these things from chapter 12, but I've been living with them introspectively for days now, prepared to stand up and, and teach from Luke chapter 12, and then Joseph just completely wounds me with Psalm 103 before I stand up to do it, and yes, that's what we need. Even the portion in there you could, you could feel how applicable it is in Psalm 103 that man is like a flower and the glory of man is like a flower and when the wind blows it dies and the place where it was doesn't even remember it was there. You know, uh, the comfort to set the stage for the next couple of weeks is this earth will not remember your coming or going. That's what Psalm 103 is saying. Just like it has no regard for how many birds are in the sky. This earth will not endure your glory for whatever it is. 
children, offspring, they will forget about you. I, I briefly knew my great-grandparents. Beyond that, I don't have a clue. <laughs> Forgotten. Entirely. Forever. No one remembers them. But the comfort is God knows every hundred billion small birds that have ever existed and every hair on your head and the comfort should be that when we die that is the almighty being that we will meet and that is both a comfort and a terror a comfort in the extension of this offering to confess Jesus Christ crucified resurrected the son of God in whom your faith is for eternal salvation the comfort in the hope of forgiveness and redemption but the tear if we will not confess him because of the cost. So that's enough for today. So I'll just summarize with this this morning. Just the words. Don't be afraid. If you are not a Christian this morning. If you do not confess Jesus before men. If your faith is not in the Lord. I'll just give you his words. Do not be afraid of what's going to happen to you here on this earth. Be afraid of the one who will take your life and then cast you into eternal torment. Every once in a while, I'll sit down with someone who tells me, I believe the Bible and I believe in Jesus and I believe in these things. What you're saying makes sense. Will you confess Jesus? Will you be a Christian? I'm just not ready yet. I think. What a crazy, illogical thing to say. You believe that Jesus died on a cross to save people from eternal hell? You believe in eternal judgment? You believe in the vastness of God's sovereignty over the morality of your life? And you're just not ready for forgiveness? <laughs> if you are not a Christian, you should come running to the front after the service today. Don't stop to give anybody a hospitable hug or kiss. Come running to the front. And you take me, I'll be right there. And you grab me and you say, I have not confessed Jesus as I should before men. And I want to make it abundantly clear where my faith is. <laughs> Anything else is just insanity. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, there is no one righteous here, no, not one. There is no perfect sinner. There are only redeemed and forgiven human beings. I thank you for your mercy and your patience, your long-suffering with us. I thank you for your word 
to think of the links to which you have gone to send your only begotten son into the world to give us messages like this. This is an ambassador from heaven that we do not deserve. And that you have given him and allowed him to suffer evenings of questioning by dumb Pharisees, by hypocritical lawyers, that you allowed him to live the earthly life of difficulty that he lived with people who for some reason considered themselves theological equals with him. That you stepped into the world and endured the debates of your creation so that you could deliver to us, your friends, this gospel is beyond me. I could not have done that. I am amazed when I read your word that the earth did not open up beneath the feet of such people. And then... I go on a trip and I look in the mirror and I look down to make sure it hasn't opened up beneath my feet. Forgive us, Lord, for the way we have twisted and curved and manipulated and blunted the edge of the blade that is your word so that it doesn't cut so much. And we can feel good about ourselves. Help us only to feel good about our faith and the kind of living that it produces. Give us peace when we have repented. Give us courage as we trust in your sovereignty. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.